Welcome to That Anthro Podcast, the podcast dedicated to anthropology. Together, each week, we will be learning from the experts and researchers that are researching our pasts and today's problems. My name is Gabriella Campbell, and I'll be interviewing a new guest each week to bring to you the latest and greatest in anthropology. Join me for weekly episodes, whether you're an anthropology buff or looking to learn something new. Welcome to That Anthro Podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. It's Gabby here. I hope you're having a great day. This episode's coming out a little bit later in the day. Sorry, I had a very hectic day and I wanted to make sure I had time to record an intro and get the description, you know, uh, to represent all of the amazing things that we talk about in this episode and all of the different accomplishments of the guest today. So our guest today is Dr. Ayana Fluellen. Um, They're an assistant professor of anthropology at Stanford University. Dr. Fluellen is a feminist archaeologist who works with collections originating from the African diaspora and specifically focuses on small finds and the extraordinary stories that those items tell. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, listeners, welcome back to That Anthro Podcast. Today we have Dr. Ayana Fluellen here. I'm super excited. Uh, they're awesome. And they are currently at Stanford um, as a professor, but uh, we're going to learn all about their journey through anthropology. So welcome. Um, and let's just kind of start with a general background about your life, like where you grew up, and then we'll go into undergrad. That sounds great. Uh, thank you, Gabriella. It's so nice to be here on your podcast and be a part of this wonderful um, archive, really, that you are creating. Um, so starting from the beginning, like you asked where I'm from. I was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up in Miami, Florida. And in between that, my mother who had a lot of different jobs with nonprofits before she decided to go back to school in Florida, took us up to Tacoma Park, Maryland for a little bit, out to Albuquerque, New Mexico for a little bit, and then down to Miami, Florida, where my grandmother and my aunt lived at the time. And I spent maybe like the second grade through high school 
in Miami, living first in the Cutler Ridge. I think it's called like Cutler Bay, one of those like new gentrified words for the city. But when I lived there, it was called Cutler Ridge. And I went to Cutler Ridge Elementary for a little bit. R.R. Moton, which was a magnet school that was in Homestead or Perrine, Florida. It was predominantly African-American. And then went to a magnet school for middle school called Ammons. Um, and then from there, applied to Coral Reef, which was like the um, magnet school to get into as a high schooler in South Florida. And I did not get into Coral Reef. Everyone was like, well, you should just go to Killian. But I felt some way about Killian. I was like, everybody who didn't get into Coral Reef went to Killian. I don't want to be there with a bunch of rejects. It was ridiculous. So I ended up going to my home school, which was um, Felix Varela Senior High School. And the really wonderful thing about Felix Varela is that there was a school counselor who saw me walking in the hallways one day because I was the newspaper like editor in chief so I was always roaming the hallways on our campus and she asked me if I had plans for college and it was because of a conversation with her that I ended up at the University of Florida. Oh, that's so, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit about my I guess upbringing. <laughs> yeah. When were you first introduced to anthropology um, as like an academic because I think we all have like the general well maybe not everyone but a lot of people have the like general like romanticized archaeology like they kind of know what that is because of like history classes but like specifically when were you introduced to anthropology as like a field of study? Yeah so my introduction to anthropology and archaeology came in college as an undergrad at the University of Florida and I feel like I clicked with the sort of notion of archaeology because when I had like very, I have very vivid memories growing up in Tacoma Park, Maryland, when my mother would take me to the mall, right, and you would go into all of the museums if it was the American History Museum or the Natural History Museum and they have really wonderful like children's exhibits. So I have like these memories of spending hours in these museums and really enjoying myself. So when I was at the University of Florida, I was like an exploratory major for the first two years that I was there and I graduated in three. So for more than half the time that I was there, I didn't know what the hell I was going to do <laughs> um, in terms of like you know, pursuits after college. I thought I'd do journalism because I did a lot of journalism when I was in high school. I thought maybe I'd do psychology since my mom was a psychologist. I had all these like ideas mm -hmm. and took classes. Nothing really clicked until I took an anthropology class. And it was a cultural anthropology class at that um, that was taught by a graduate student at the University of Florida at the time. Um, and I really enjoyed myself. I thought it was a lot of fun. There was something about being able to learn um, about other people from folks who really came from around the world, were doing work around the world that was really exciting for me. And then I remember after taking that class, like in the fall, I think I might've even taken that class during the summer. I remember looking at the class 
like roster register and trying to figure out like what other classes I was going to take. And I was like, well, maybe I'll do this whole anthropology thing and see what happens. And I saw that there was one cross-listed course between anthropology and the African-American studies program at the school. And it was James Davidson's class um, called an archeology span of African-American life and history. And it's not a class that's taught everywhere. Yeah. Like very rarely are you going to yeah. find someone who's able to have their introduction to archaeology be one that is so thematically temporally specific, right? So that was your first archaeology class. That was my first archaeology. Wow, yeah, that is a really unique and amazing way to be introduced <laughs> to the subject. Exactly. And if I had taken the intro to archaeology class, which I did take after James's class, I probably would not have become mm-hmm. an archaeologist because it actually wasn't the most appealing class that I took. It was taught once again by another graduate student who honestly had very interesting political understandings of this world that did not at all align with the ways in which I saw this world. So I think that, you know, my introduction to archaeology through James um, was a real gift to me. And I like to specify um, that, you know, you can't see me, but I'm a Black non-binary archaeologist. Um, And oftentimes when people think about this kind of like necessity of having more scholars of color, they're often talking about Black and Brown archaeologists being in this kind of role of teaching and educating. And I like to remind people that my introduction to archaeology was taught by James Davidson. And if you've seen him, he's a tall, lanky, white man. And I think it's important to state that the primary teachers and instructors in this discipline are white and mm-hmm. that it is ne- it is necessary for, you know, the kind of development of scholars like me in this field to come from white teachers who teach <laughs> in inclusive ways that allow their students from a variety of different backgrounds to see themselves in their classrooms because it provides the space of possibility that I felt in that class with James. Um, So aside from that, that particular class, um, which had at the forefront of it, an understanding and a rooting in the politics of doing African diaspora archeology span allowed myself to see not only that It was a fantastic sort of take on understanding and studying history, but that it had a grounding in the ways in which African-Americans were experiencing their life today. And because of that, I was like, oh, this is real. Like there's a tangible applied way that the tangibility of history like grounds itself in these lived realities today. Um, And I learned that in James's class. And then from that class, I was able to take a lab class with him. And then I did his field school, which was at um, the National Park Service site, Kingsley Plantation, which is off the coast of Jacksonville, Florida on Fort George Island. And the significance of that particular plantation is that in the 19, late 1960s, it was where Charles Fairbanks actually posed the first questions at a plantation site 
regarding the life of the enslaved Africans that lived and labored there. So it's the foreground of plantation archaeology. And James had then taken up that work and was doing a lot of really fantastic plantation archaeology work, African diaspora archaeology work, asking about the lived experiences, particularly the kind of religious practices that were found in the domestic spaces that enslaved Africans and African-Americans lived in at that site. Um, so that was the training ground for yeah. me that once again allowed me to see myself in this field in really concrete ways, but also to understand the importance of this field to, you know, these kinds of questions around the present day, like I keep saying, the present day experiences of African-Americans, but also the futurity mm -hmm. of African-African diasporic people. Yeah. And what I really like about about that, aside from, you know, the fact that you were able to see yourself is that it's it's like historical archaeology. And I think there doesn't always have to be doesn't have everything doesn't have to be ancient for us to study mm -hmm. it and for us to get at those lived experiences and to uh, retell history from the perspective of the people who actually lived it. Because as we all know, history is so often written by those who are just blindly observing with absolutely no context and um I'm wondering what was like a big takeaway from you research wise from that like initial field school because I think everyone's first field school is very important to them because I think that's where you either realize you love field work or you're a lab person or maybe both um what were some key takeaways from that that field experience from you for you and I think some key takeaways from that field experience was that it, I think it like really solidified for me that I wanted to do this, mm -hmm. right? And I think as someone, as I mentioned, having been an exploratory major for two years, I was easily able to just say, oh, this is fun. Oh, maybe I'll do this. Oh, maybe I'll do that. Maybe I can do this. Um, but to actually like experience that field school, take that class, take classes with James, I was like, I want to do this. You know, mm -hmm. that field experience, what included both um, field work, actually excavating in the field and doing household archaeology, excavating in and around the enslaved people's homes at that site, and then also lab experience as well. So we were doing lab work in the field. Um, and then I also took classes that were in his lab um, mm -hmm. following that experience. So I think it just really allowed me to see varying aspects mm -hmm. of the discipline um, and really say that I enjoy it. Like I enjoy both aspects of it. I want to do both um, and say yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really want to visit more of like, I've been to Florida once, but I feel like the Keys and the islands off of Florida are such special like little ecosystems. Mm -hmm. I'm, I really want to go. So you graduate this so is this field school happening like the summer after that second year when you've taken that first cultural anth class or are we talking the summer after graduation I think it's that same it must have been that like same summer so if I graduated high school in 2008 and that field school was in what 2010 okay and I graduated in 2000 11 in December of 2011. So I did another field school the summer of 2011 in Tanzania. Mm -hmm. 
a different professor. Oh, okay. Well, that's quite the difference. Like <laughs> it is. driving probably to <laughs> school versus flying to a whole other continent. Yes. Um, what was like the site or the like um, the project going on in Tanzania that you joined? Yeah. So the second field school experience that I had was in Bukoba, Tanzania, which is in like the highlands of Tanzania, the countryside. Um, And it was a lot of fun, right? So it was like six weeks, which was, I feel like a bit longer than the one I did at Kingsley. Um, But it was also my first time like traveling abroad. Um, And it was the, I think, first time that I had, you know, a significant number of students that attended it were like people of African descent as well. So it was like me as an undergrad and then there were two um, black men who attended as graduate students, Justin Donovan, who would later become an intellectual co-conspirator of mine and we work together and have been working together since 2011. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was gonna you know, say the name sounds familiar. Yeah, and our, our work and our field work experience together really solidified you know, how we wanted to move forward in the field and really design um, an organization that centered on support for mm-hmm. scholars like us in the discipline. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really enjoyed myself in Tanzania and the site itself was an early iron forging site in mm-hmm. Bukova. So it was a completely different time period yeah. as well as like regional um, space. And it also, I think, you know, as someone who now is teaching a class on like archaeology of Africa and the diaspora, being able to talk about both of those experiences Mm -hmm. in my classroom settings has been really wonderful. Yeah, Yeah. that's really interesting. And um, I think this is kind of just like a natural place because I told you we're going to jump all over the place in this conversation. (laughs) What, um, I think it's great that you get to teach that class. So the answer may be that class, but what is your favorite (laughs) class to teach at Stanford? Yeah, my favorite class to teach at Stanford. So I started at Stanford in July of 2022. And prior to teaching at Stanford, I was teaching for about two years or a year and a half, really, at the University of California, Riverside. And it was at UCR that I developed um, a course called The Will to Adorn. Um, an anthropology of dress that really, you know, allows me to stay more connected with my current book project and also be in conversation with students around like what is exciting them in terms of like clothing, adornment, these sort of sartorial practices that I look at. Um, And it's my favorite class to teach. So I teach, you know, the will to adorn. I'm teaching it for the first time here at Stanford in the spring. So in a couple of weeks actually. <laughs> wow. Oh, because it's Stanford quarter system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. 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 So Stanford's on the quarter system. Um, so it'll be, you know, a really wonderful 10 week experience. And the class itself is an ode to Zorno Hurston. She has a piece that was written in the 1930s called um, Characteristics of Negro Expression. Mm-hmm. And within that, she talks about 
African-Americans and their will, quite literally, quote, will to adorn and the ways in which their sartorial practices or the ways in which they dress their body in everyday life is really reflective of their desires and their souls yearning in a particular way. Um, and I take that up in this particular class where we look at all forms of dress that includes both like modifications of the body itself, if it's like binding of feet, corsetry, um, other body modifications. So modifying your hair is a form of body modifications, tattooing, piercing is a form of body modification, stretching is a form of body modification. And then we move towards the kind of supplements that are then added to the body, if it's clothing, if it's jewelry, um, paint, things like that, that are then added to the body, perfume, to really think about the kind of historical as well as cultural significance around like scent and smell that I think we oftentimes think is very commonplace, but actually is very historically linked. <laughs> yeah. um, even like notions of like how we clean our bodies is historically linked. Um, an understanding of clean and unclean bodies, things like that. So all of these are topics that we explore in this class. And then we talk about how, you know, anthropology itself as a discipline has really rooted itself in the codification of difference, oftentimes through what is seen and experienced on other people's bodies. So the latter part of the class actually looks at how we shift the way we see other people and thinking about how we change the ways in which we gaze, um, which is really exciting as wow. well. Okay, so um, I'm gonna just like drop out of George Mason real quick and just like <laughs> at Stanford so I can take that class because that is so interesting. And, and I feel like, and it's gonna be one of those classes where, cause I'm sure it will transition a bit from Riverside just because, you know, every time you teach a class it changes, but like yeah. so much student participation and so much like critical thinking going on yeah. that I yeah. think sometimes can be lacking from the classroom where we're just teaching like this set curriculum. And yeah. that sounds like a place where, you know the students interests are really gonna like interject and oh, that's so, amazing and like I I would love to be fly on the wall in that class that sounds amazing and the perfume thing that's something I never would have thought about for like body modification but is so interesting especially when you're talking about like what you're trying to convey with a scent and oh, so fascinating yeah yeah and we look at a lot of archaeological sites and archaeological projects that take up the sensory right and thinking about how these landscapes used to smell in the past wow. uh, and how like scent was used as a very real sort of um, indicator of difference in societies Ooh. across this world. Um, so it's really, it's really interesting. And the class is so rooted in the students' own lived experiences. Yeah. So we start from that experiential place and then move from that into these other sort of global case studies. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited to teach it here, mainly because, you know, the the real sort of difference, I think, between teaching at UCR versus Stanford, and of course, there's like the very surface level, like it's a, UCR was a, a public institution, a large public institution, and Stanford is a small private institution, but 
in terms of like my actual tenure at UCR, because it was during the pandemic, mm, I yeah. taught half the time that I taught there was online. Mm. And it's like two quarters that I taught that were in person. So I'm actually just really excited to teach this class for the second time mm. in person. <laughs> so yeah. yeah, it really, it really does change like how we um how we're able to interact with each other. And also what people feel comfortable sharing, you know, like there's a difference in, in what you feel comfortable sharing in a space when it's through Zoom squares versus if I can look at other people in their mm. eyes and like share this, so. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yes. For your own sanity, I'm glad though that you went from quarter system to quarter system. Because oh, absolutely. <laughs> I, so UCSB where I graduated from was quarter system and now I'm on semester system yeah. and I'm like, oh, semester system, it's so nice. And I can't imagine if you had like developed, you know, your teaching style in a semester system and then gone to a quarter system because who quarter systems. It is, it is a sprint the entire time. You're just sprinting. <laughs> and, uh, one of my friends, when she was transferring from community college to, uh, a four year, I said, you've been on the semester system now for two years. I would highly recommend that you prioritize a college that has the semester system. Like I was, I was like, and she was like, eh. and then she got, she ended up going to one with a semester system. And she's like, you're right. That was, that was, that was what I needed to do. And I was like, yes, they're very different. Um, which I guess is a good note for anyone listening who is a community college student considering, uh, transferring that, you know, I mean, it's not that you can't go to a quarter system. It's just that it may be a little bit smoother of a transition if you've kind of already gotten used to the pace of a semester system. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's go back a little in time a little bit and talk about your master's and your PhD. Master's in African diaspora studies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was at the same school as your PhD because some people do do it differently. Um, how did that master's inform your PhD research? Yeah, absolutely. And we can actually like take it back maybe like one year yeah. as I'm like finishing up undergrad and I'm looking into graduate schools and I knew that I was going to go to graduate school. Like I was someone who had witnessed my mother go through graduate school. Like she went uh, when we moved to Miami, she went back to community college at Miami Day. Then she went to Florida International University, went all the way through her master's and her PhD in psychology and is like now wow. teaching at the University of Michigan. So I witnessed her do that as an adolescent. So I was like maybe 12 or something when she um, went back. So I saw her like move through that process. And I was like, I'm gonna do that, <laughs> you know, um, so I knew that I was going to go to graduate school and I was trying to figure out where to go and at the time I was thinking about whether or not I wanted a PhD in anthropology or a PhD in black studies right Mm -hmm. an African-American studies program or an African and African diaspora studies program and I, I didn't know which one yet And I remember thinking to myself, well, I want to do archaeology. And I had a really frank conversation um, with some, like with some peers at the time. And I was like, you know, do I, I think it was actually several things. It was like Black studies, archaeology, anthropology, museums, like like there were all these different sort of things that were coming up for me. And um, someone that I was talking to, it was a professor, told me 
it might have been like Dr. Faye Harrison, but she, I feel like someone told me it is easy, it is easier to shift from academia to museum studies than making the shift from museum studies to academia. Yeah. And she was like, so, you know, you can still do, you can still do one. It might be a little bit difficult to do the other. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, so I'll do, I'll do academia. I know it was something that I wanted to do, even though between graduate school, undergrad and graduate school, I had a six month internship Ooh. at the Smithsonian's African-American History and Culture Museum oh. and was actually at the groundbreaking. I have a pin that was given for that groundbreaking on my um, debt, on my shelf here um, on campus. Uh, so I I was really like thinking through like what it is that I wanted to, to do, you know, even post degree mm. at that. Um, so there were several different things that were running through my head. At one point I was like, maybe I'll do the Peace Corps. Um, so it's all to say out loud that like, as an undergrad, you get to grapple with these yeah. sort of questions and you don't have to know the answer to them. You know, you get to like actually write out the kind of list that you need to sort of figure out what kind of steps you want to do to move forward. And I decided, okay, I'm not going to do the Peace Corps, I'm going to do graduate school. I'm not going to do Black Studies, I'm going to do um, anthropology. And I landed on that because I knew I wanted to do archaeology. Mm -hmm. And it is very difficult in this country to do archaeology without an, an anthropology degree. It is. Yes. It is difficult to get permits from yeah. Shiflo offices without like it is it is difficult um to do that without that credential so I was like all right I'll get the anthropology degree I'll focus in archaeology but I wanted to go to a school I knew I was going to do African diaspora stuff mm. I wanted to go to a school that had archaeologists that did really fantastic African diaspora archaeology and I thought that that could only be possible if these people actually had a Black Studies department mm -hmm. or a program on their campus as, mm -hmm. as well. So I intentionally looked at schools that had fantastic anthropology departments and fantastic Black Studies departments. So if you didn't have one, I was unconvinced. <laughs> and for good reason. That, yeah, that I could have learned to do African diaspora archaeology well. Mm -hmm out access to black studies classes. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, um, I applied to like Amherst, Urbana-Champaign, mm. um, uh, UT Austin and Syracuse. And I was going to apply to Berkeley, but Berkeley wouldn't let you get a master's in one mm. program and a PhD in the other. Um, and it How was actually, yeah. It was actually only it was actually only UT Austin at the time, and it was a short window of time. It was like the year that I came and the year before me that their Black Studies department, so their African and African Diaspora Studies department, was in formation, mm -hmm. and because it was in formation, they had links for their MA students to mm -hmm. other departments. So you could you can get a master's in Black Studies and link to a different department and you would automatically be accepted into that department. Really and that's important because you can get a master's anywhere and then likely you have to reapply to whatever other department you'd like for your PhD yeah. and they can accept you or they can't accept you. Yeah. 
Um, in my acceptance letter from UT, it was built in that I would get a master's in African diaspora archaeology or get a master's in African diaspora studies and get my PhD in anthropology. It was written into the acceptance letter. Um, and that's how I was able to, to be able to, to do that. And it was really in deep dialogue with a professor, Dr. Maria Franklin, um, who worked there. You know, like I, I reached out to her. I was really adamant about wanting to apply there. And I was really adamant about wanting um, to get a master's in Black studies. And she was like, let me see what's possible. And her let me see what's possible is what made that link program possible wow. for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's incredible. And of all places, like, it seems like Texas is, just seems like it's interesting that that's <laughs> where that ended up working out. Yeah. Um, but at the time, UT Austin's Black Studies program was the first Black Studies PhD granting department oh. in the South. I don't, wow. I'm sure that that's not true anymore, but it was really groundbreaking wow. for the time. Yeah, yeah. And that was what, 2012? <laughs> yeah, 2011, 2011, 2012. Yeah, yeah. Sad that it took that long. <laughs> Um, but that's really amazing. And so what did, did you, well, before we get into the research, did you, so then did you have two different advisors or someone who kind of carried through? Yeah, I had, uh, Maria Franklin was the advisor that carried through. Okay. So the first reader for my master's, um, was Dr. Diana Berry, who's a fantastic historic historian of like, you know, gendered U.S. South she's the person that you would go to is renowned in in the field of history and she was my first reader for my master's and Maria was my second reader and then Maria was my um, chair of my committee um, for my for my PhD but I think you know you pointing out how it's interesting that it would be in Texas mm -hmm. that these are taking place because you know having my education grounded in Florida and Texas with the kind of legislation that is moving through this country right now, yeah. it would be unsurprising if 10 years from now, both of the sort of programs that I, you know, got my degree in were no longer in existence or no longer funded um, simply because of the kind of discourse happening yeah. um, right now around education in black and ethnic studies and women and gender studies around this country. So yeah, it's it's been interesting for me moving from California to Virginia because oh, I get I <laughs> little, little, little tastes of it and I'm like, whoa. And I and I mean, even like with your gender identity, like you yeah. would have been safe, um, yeah. especially with like the legislation that's been passing for gender affirmative care. And um, it's it's, it's scary. And the fact that, you know, these places that have programs that are clearly supportive programs that are clearly, um, trying to disseminate knowledge and, and, uh, um, cult like culturally sensitive knowledge, like they're trying to teach in a way that is inclusive of people mm -hmm. and they're being blocked from that. And it's mm -hmm. so sad. And I think all we can hope is that I don't even know what we can hope at this point. It's, <laughs> it's it is really quite it is really quite disheartening. And for and it's like the 
the research itself, you know, okay, like that, like that is one thing, but I think, you know, this other part around, you know, the notion, because I was listening to NPR today, just about the notion that you can't even bring up sexuality in K through 12 classrooms and how they're trying to pass that for college level classes as well. But it, but it was like, you can't even bring up pronouns. I have a disclaimer in all of my syllabi Mm. that state what my pronouns Mm -hmm. are um, and how I respect everyone's pronouns in the class. So to think that that simple, like what feels like a simple disclaimer to allow myself Mm -hmm. as well as my students to be able to show up as their full selves in the classroom is under threat is wild to think. For sure. Yeah. And this is the last thing I'll say about my personal experience because this is supposed to be about you, but I was telling you for Anthro Day, I did uh, presentations and one of them was, so I partnered with the AAA for my podcast and they partnered me with a high school in Virginia uh, to do a virtual lecture. And I was introduced, it was a IB cultural anthropology class, which first of all, I didn't even know that existed. Right. Awesome. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, I can kind of hit them with like a little bit higher level of a talk because they know what anthropology is. So I was like, okay, if they're all they're talking about is uh, cultural, I'll introduce them to what I do, which is biological. And as I'm writing this presentation, all of a sudden I'm going, oh my God, something that I would just normally say, which is that biological sex is different from gender and uh, gender has lots of different expressions and we cannot determine that from the skeleton. I was like, I can't say that. I was like, I could actually cause an issue. And I kind of realized that like late, like lead in the days leading up to it, where Mm -hmm. if I had realized it earlier, maybe I could have had a conversation with the teacher and maybe she would have said that was okay. But I just kind of had that like gut instinct of like, this is rural Virginia. Like Mm -hmm. you are not in California anymore. And that is not just something you can say and know for 100% certain there will be no ramifications. Maybe there would have been no issues if I would have said that, but also the teacher cut off the cultural anthropologist who talked after me because of what she was talking about because she didn't like it. So I think I was dead on with that assumption. And it's sad because when I've given a similar talk to a middle school in California, I love that I get to introduce them to the idea that the skeleton is not determinant of their gender identity. Um, And I love that I am putting that in their brains at a young age. And I was just so sad that I did have to leave like it almost it, it like hurt me that when I was and I made sure I was like we can estimate biological sex from the skeleton because I wanted to I was generally talking about like what forensic anthropologists and bioarchaeologists do so I did want to like include that but I was like just a reminder that anything we do as bioarchaeologists is an estimation we cannot understand the lived experiences as much as we wish we could so yeah. Well, I'm glad you're at Stanford now and you're in a place where you can uh, use your pronouns and you can uh, get respect, especially like I'm hoping from your colleagues and everything. Um, That's a super powerful thing. And um, so let's go back to the PhD. What did you end up doing your research on? And I will say the last thing I will say is that, you know, when I came from my job talk here at Stanford, it was still, you know, coming out of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And I had a mask on my face that said they, she. So there was like just this kind of declarative way that like I came into this space, 
you know, with this on my actual face. <laughs> so every meeting that I went into, every talk that I gave, I was just like, this is who I am. And I got the job. So there's no like pretense about it. Yeah. Um, but the PhD research. So my dissertation research, I was trying, I was having, you know, really um, intense conversations with myself eh, after I got my master's about whether or not I wanted to even do this, which I feel like if you're not having that, if you're not having that conversation as a graduate student, you know, congratulations. But if you are, it is real to yeah. sort of like after the master's ask yourself, if this is something that you want to do, do I actually yeah. continue doing this? Do I have a why to ground me in this that really allows me to do the kind of work for the next two, three, four years that will be required of me yeah. to be able to, to finish this mm -hmm. degree, right? Um, so I was having that conversation in 2014 when I got my master's and I decided to keep going. And I had a conversation with myself that was like, if I'm going to do this, it will have to be a project that matters. Mm -hmm. I will have to like somehow find joy in it. Um, and it's hard to kind of think that you would be able to find joy, especially doing work at like sites of enslavement. But I focus on everyday life and I focus on the ways in which Black people lived their lives in the midst of like tremendous amounts of precarity, tremendous amounts of violence and harm. Um, and the reality is, is that I am here because African-American communities existed, experienced love, um, and built community, sustainable community amongst each other. Um, so I was like, I want a project that excites me. And I have been someone who has been a jewelry maker um, for most of my life, more of my life than not. So my mom was someone who made jewelry um, and she taught me how to make jewelry when we lived in Miami, Florida. I have very real memories of like crafting with her and watching like Star Trek, The Next Generation or like X-Files or something. Um, I'm a kid of the 90s. Um, <laughs> but like... I knew that I, I knew that I wanted to do something I loved. I loved making jewelry. I loved the notion of adornment. I loved the notion of like what it meant to adorn the body and, and taking Black Studies classes that were so much rooted around um, subject formation of Black womanhood specifically. And I was in these sort of like classes thinking about what the kind of materiality of these subject formations could look like. Mm -hmm. And it was in those classes that I was like, you know, to be um, to be African American, to be the descendant of slaves, to be enslaved, and to somehow make a proclamation that you are not a commodity mm -hmm. um, by actually putting things of value on your flesh. It was really powerful. Yeah. Um, and it was in that kind of grounding in um, what adornment could signify, right? Because if something is a commodity, it cannot place value on itself, right? Mm -hmm. But it felt just so intrinsically um, a push against that logic that I was like, I want to see what else is possible here. So in having these conversations with Maria, 
we talked about this legacy collection um, that was at the Texas Historical Commission at the time called the Levy Jordan, the Levy Jordan Plantation Collection. And the Levy Jordan Plantation had been a really foundational collection um, of material culture recovered from the Levy Jordan Plantation, which is just like 60 miles south of Houston, Texas, uh, in Brazoria County along the Texas Gulf Coast. Um, and over 600,000 artifacts had been oh. recovered from that site. So it was a very large collection, the largest collection, I believe, of African um, diasporic material culture in Texas. And it shared this really powerful story about slavery and, and, the, and the kind of lived experiences of the enslaved in Texas. Um, and it also had a very beautiful sample of small finds, beads, buttons, buckles, um, that was really exciting at the time. Um, and, you know, I am someone who really values collections-based research mm -hmm. and collections-based research is only made possible when the kind of work that was done in the past and also the work that is done right now um, bears in mind the necessity of the collections. Yeah. Um, and what I mean by that is really doing kind of finite cataloging of belongings, artifacts that are recovered mm -hmm. to allow people in the future to ask specific kinds of questions regarding the data yeah. that the artifacts, the belongings then become, right? Especially in something that big. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that is not something that is typical. It's, it's just simply not a true thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it was really difficult wanting to do this kind of um, work, looking at small finds. I had to reanalyze a lot of the small finds in that collection. Um, and it was really through the help of colleagues um, through the Digital Archaeological Archive of Comparative Slavery that really helped me in terms of like being able to talk about the value and really finite attribute data um, and cataloging for material culture to be able to ask these kinds of in-depth questions. Mm -hmm. um, so my dissertation was all about the Levi Jordan Plantation and I was really excited to move forward with it for my book project. And then I graduated in 2018, 20, the summer of 2018, they, the Texas Historical Commission decides to do further work at the Levi Jordan Plantation. Mm. Um, and the results of that are published like two years later. Mm. Um, and the reinterpretation of the artifacts from that site, which is still like something that is up for debate because more work is necessary and needed. But the reinterpretation of the collection itself is that there might not be a way to determine the assemblages um, sort of direct connection to those who were enslaved at the site, if that makes sense. So of all of our work as archeologists are about the kind of provenience of our artifacts, yeah. right? Um, having that thrown into question really shifts the kinds of interpretations that are made possible at that site. Yeah. So for decades, that collection had been interpreted 
as coming from the domestic spaces of enslaved African mm. and African-Americans at that site. And further research into the site might shift that interpretation. I am not excavating at that site. Mm -hmm. I do not know. Um, but what it meant for me was that I had a really great dissertation that talked about the collection itself and that talked about, you know, desiring an, an, an intersectional analysis of the individuals who would have used these belongings. Mm -hmm. And I've since had to walk away from that legacy collection for my book project even though the book project itself is still asking very similar questions I needed and need to work with collections that have a more you know solid and finite um foundation yeah and the kind of projects that I've been able, or the kind of case studies that I use in the book project um, do. They come from archaeologists and collections and are in databases that have an extraordinary amount <laughs> of artifactual data yeah. attached to them um, that make asking questions about the past um, exciting and fresh in new ways. So the book project that uh, they're talking about listeners is called The Will to Adorn Black Women and Sartorial Choice After Enslavement, mm -hmm. um, which I love the title. And I mean, obviously you already mentioned you have a class called The Will to Adorn. <laughs> so um, totally in line there. But what was, well, I guess you did kind of talk about the inspiration for the book, which is like your jewelry making background. Mm -hmm. um, but aside from that, was there anything else specifically that inspired the book or like a theme that is kind of uh, continuing from your previous research into yeah. this research? Yeah, um, really the value in small finds being able to tell rather extraordinary stories, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So the book itself, it journeys through, you know, post-emancipation to reconstruction through the lives of African-American women and girls. And it centers on the belongings that these women and girls had, right? Mm -hmm. so I'm looking at the dress that Hannah Jackson had mm -hmm. um, during the eve, like, you know, of the Civil War and what it meant for um, African-Americans who emancipated themselves and then those who were later then emancipated um, to have value in cloth and textile, mm -hmm. right? The value of cloth and textile during the kind of turn of the 20th um, century. So, it's looking at those sort of small finds in really extraordinary ways, like what it meant to actually think about the kind of portable wealth ingrained in um, small finds when it came to individuals, African-Americans specifically during and after the Civil War, whom the capital that they had oftentimes was a capital that they were able to carry. Yeah. So that portable capital, if it was like the textiles or not, or if it were the thimbles and needles to actually mend the textiles yeah. was of extreme value and importance in ways that you might not think of if you come across a thimble at an archeological mm -hmm. site. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about the sort of remnants of shoes and shoe button mm -hmm. huts that were found 
at Sarah Williams Farmstead site in, um, in Texas and really having conversations around the value of actually providing children with shoes post-emancipation. When throughout the era of enslavement, and we can read about this in um, ex-slave narrative accounts, shoes were not given to enslaved children. And oftentimes people can remember the very first account of shoes that they mm -hmm. um, had. And you can look at Harriet Jacobs' um, slave narrative that talks about her walking miles in the snow without shoes as an enslaved child. So there are these ways that I'm thinking about what it meant for Black women to provide their children with shoes to really talk through navigating and walking the topography of Texas and being a topography of like racial violence. Yeah. And then looking at the very small like wire name pin oh. of a woman named Leorena who was interred at the Dallas Friedman Cemetery at the turn of the 20th century. And really thinking about how oftentimes in mortuary archeology, span what we know about of people's clothing and adornment, oftentimes the most preserved sort of articulations of what people actually wore, but it's not something that you chose, right? Like we are buried in the things that people have put on us. Mm. Um, but I question what could be possible about, or I question what could be explored really. Um, and thinking about these collections, especially when you're looking at personalized and engraved objects that mm -hmm. actually do speak to what people would have chosen to wear when they were alive. Yeah. Um, so I look at, you know, this beautiful wire name pin and how because we have the wire name pin that says Leorena, we're able to explore more about who Leorena could have possibly been in Dallas at the turn of the 20th century. Yeah. And then, you know, tangential or right beside that, we have another wire name pin that did not preserve mm. well. So we don't know the name of that individual. And it speaks so concretely to the ways in which even our archaeological material and the ways in which preservation does and does not occur, mm -hmm. we have vast, you know, silences and erasures because of it. Yeah. Um, so all of that is explored in this, in this book project. And then because I feel like artists are amazing and are doing fantastic work in this world right now, the final chapter of that book is actually looking at contemporary artists that are taking up the kind of um, issues and topics around sartorial practices of Black women in the past and their present day artwork and really exciting, exciting ways. So I'm looking at a reenactor who like, you know, wears really um, beautiful uh, garments, everyday garments from like the 1800s and 1900s inspired. I'm looking at um, another artist, Fabiola Jean-Louis. The first one was Chani. McKnight, I believe is how you say her name, but Fabiola uh, Jean-Louis, who makes these beautiful Victorian-inspired dresses out of paper. Um, and then, yeah, another woman, um, oh my goodness, Sarah. Sarah's last name starts with an H, but she has um, this image called Tailoring Freedom. And um, 
Is that what that piece? I think I'm getting things confused. But the other, the final artwork that's looked at is by an artist who's using staples to actually um, fabricate the image of textile and cloth dress over these past images, anthropological images of black bodies that were used to otherize them. Um, so it's really taking up how black women, um, black women artists today are in a practice of redress in terms of like thinking through um, these sort of practices of social justice related to sartorial um, concerns in their artwork. And it's been really fun to, to think about. <laughs> on the topic of artwork, there were two things that I saw on your, um, uh, on your website. And one of them was uh, the boat, the water and open mouths, uh, histories held in the Atlantic. Uh, could you tell me a bit about that project? Yeah, so as a maker, I've oftentimes turned towards, you know, the space of making, crafting and creating to help me think through some of the um, academic writing that I'm doing. And those, those three projects are a part of that work. So I've been doing a lot more in the water <laughs> as yeah. it relates to archaeology, mainly through, you know, my affiliation with Diving with a Purpose, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to um, oceanic conservation of marine um, ecosystems and also African diasporic heritage sites that are submerged. And um, through my work with them and, and through many of their um, divers teaching me how to dive, teaching me how to survey um, wreck sites and getting me in touch with a whole new sort of field and terrain, <laughs> aquatic yeah. terrain of um of study i've been thinking about the kind of histories that are held in our waters and in our waterways and in our seascapes um, much in the same way that i think about the kind of stories that are held beneath the feet that we when we walk on loins sand and ground yeah. um and because of that i've been in this practice in my art around creating and thinking through what these what these aquatic spaces these liquid spaces can hold um, and the boat actually really speaks towards Edward Lisson's prose um, of the same title that talks about the ways in which, you know, um, Africa is the continent and the diaspora. There's this sort of image that he draws of a kind of line that has two sort of pronged ends after it. And it's really thinking about the kind of ways in which people from across the continent were then like pulled across the Atlantic in really um, horrible waves through the middle passage. And then this like thin line is like the middle passage itself. And then the prong ends at the side is the creation of the diaspora on the other end of it. And I think about what could be held in that small line, right? So the piece itself has like Kyrie shells falling down mm -hmm. from it because it's thinking about the kind of stories and histories that the water itself holds as a space of subject making mm -hmm. um, that isn't just exclusive to the land masses in which people um, came from and were brought to. 
Yeah, so it's been really exciting um, in that way. And I'm looking forward to carving out more time in my life to do it because I haven't been able to sit with my binge and, and with my tools to to really work the way that I used to. The pandemic really, you know, of the horrible things that did happen, it, it did allow for a kind of spaciousness and time that I've never been able to grasp since. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like in academia, you're thrown into just like a never ending cycle of people needing you or needing, you know, your attention. Yes. Um, but I really do hope for you that you can reclaim some of that because I was so amazed by your artwork that I saw on your website. And I look forward to posting some pictures of it uh, along with the podcast episodes so that everyone else can see as well. So I really want to talk about the uh, Estate Little Princess Project yeah. um, on the St. Croix, uh, on St. Croix, which is a U.S. Virgin Island. Mm -hmm. So um, what are the goals of this project and how did you get involved? Yeah. So the Estate Little Princess Project is really the post-PhD recent, mm -hmm. right? And it is in collaboration with several other scholars, um, Justin Donovan, who's an assistant professor at the University of California, Los Angeles. Oh, that's, there we go. Okay, I was like, <laughs> the name ringing bells. Okay, now I've placed yeah. him. Okay. <laughs> Dr. William White, who's at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, Dr. Alicia Odawale, who's at University of Tulsa, um, and Dr. Alexander Jones, who's the CEO of Archaeology in the Community. So the five of us have made up the foundation of the Estate Little Princess Project, and it was conceived of in 2016 by myself and Justin. And we turned towards our community um, of colleagues and friends who we knew did fantastic work to help us build out this project. So we reached out to Alicia Odawale because she had worked on St. Croix for an upwards of like four or five years at the time. We knew we wanted to have a youth component that really focused on training youth on St. Croix and archeological methods, but also brought them out to the site to really experience this work hands-on. And it was a desire from community members when we met with them in 2016 to offer concrete sort of um, work experiences for youth that they could use um, in the field. And the National Park Service is one of the main sort of employers on um, both St. Croix, St. Thomas, and St. John. Um, so we reached out to Dr. Alexander Jones from Archaeology in the community to help us build out that component. And then Dr. William White, who's at Berkeley now, is a really fantastic field archaeologist. Like he knows his methods. Um, and we wanted to bring him out to really help us do our initial survey work. And he's since stayed on and has been an integral component of this project. Um, and it is the two of us actually going down um, this summer for our six week field school down there. But the Estate Little Princess is an 18th century Danish sugar plantation on the island of St. Croix. And St. Croix, which has been under several different European <laughs> flags. Um, the occupation by the Danish lasted the longest from the mm. mid 1700s through 1917. And the estate itself is a product of Danish colonialism in the Caribbean, which is very, is not spoken of mm -hmm. much um, in terms of when you think about European powers that mm -hmm. gained a tremendous amount of wealth due to the transatlantic slave trade. 
Um, and they played a huge role in that and made them one of the, you know, 10 wealthiest countries in Europe because of it. Um, so that particular site we're excavating in the enslaved village area and at its height, like in 17, in the 1770s, the estate accounted for over 140 enslaved Africans that lived um, in the village area that housed um, an upwards of 25 coral stone homes. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the smaller plantations on St. Croix. Um, a larger plantation, for instance, would have been Queen's Quarter number 26, the Scion Farm Plantation that at its height had over 300 enslaved Africans on it. Um, so it was relatively small for its size um, in, in terms of like its counterparts. Um, so we've been excavating in that, in that area, really asking questions about the lived experiences of the enslaved and really thinking about the use of shared space, so the space between these sort of three by six duplex cabins that are um, that we see some of the foundations of out there. Um, and also thinking about the actual extent of the village area itself. Um, and more so thinking about the building construction that really could talk to um, formations of kinship on site. So we know that the architecture of the spaces, the duplexes, what we see are like three by six duplexes. But what we know from the archival record is that there were 73 like rooms, but only 20 plus homes. So mm -hmm. we are still trying to figure out if some of them are duplexes or triplexes, are there long homes? And there are a series of different sort of housing configurations that you see at various plantations on mm -hmm. St. Croix that speak to the kind of experiences within these domestic spaces as well. Um, so those are our questions mm -hmm. a lot, um, thinking through, you know, and the kind of finds that we've had, which have been lots of ceramic and glass and, you know, the site has been lived in, you know, for an upwards of 200 years, you know, so folks were still living in this particular area in the 1960s, probably oh. as unquote squatters. Um, so also really trying to find discrete assemblages that date to the time period that we're most interested in, which is the era of enslavement. Yes. So like between 1753 um, and 1848. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that comes down to really, once again, being able to do that kind of finite dating of ceramic because ceramic production shifted so much during that time period. Yeah. And we're finding a lot in terms of like the diversity of ceramics coming out of the enslaved village area, which is really a testament to the availability of European goods across island mm -hmm. um, and how, you know, St. Croix being an area that had open ports, you mm -hmm. know, that there was a lot of trade happening on St. Thomas, St. Croix and St. St. John that allowed for an influx of goods and thinking about access and consumer practices yeah. right, as of questions coming out um, of that. So yeah, yeah. I of course have desired to find more small finds, but mm -hmm. I think um, with us focusing more um, inside of domestic spaces, I might get yeah. a bit luckier finding small finds. <laughs> sure. so, um, and I'm sure that um, 
there's no uh, excavating of burials, but are there any burials associated with the site? Yeah, so there is there is certain there's certainly a cemetery somewhere on that property, okay. and it is not known. Oh, uh, there were cemeteries attached to all of the plantations on Saint Croix, and mm -hmm. most of them have been lost to the historical record. Mm -hmm. And there is really fantastic work happening by community members on Saint Croix to try and locate mm -hmm. um, cemeteries. You know, I think a lot of the work that people turn towards like GPR is really hard there because the terrain itself does not lend itself to that kind of yeah. work easily. So a lot of it is actually doing a lot of just walking surveys to actually yeah. see can you see depressions and grounds and things like that. Uh, we did some ground penetrating radar around a tamarind tree that was out on the estate because we know that tamarind trees were used throughout St. Croix as markers for grid, mm -hmm. but we do believe that the tamarind tree that is now living um, adjacent to the um, enslaved village area is the second generation of a tamarind tree yeah. that was destroyed during Hurricane Hugo in the 1980s, and we don't know the location of that previous tree. Um, so that is a question that is up in the air, and it's not it's not known. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's great that you already have the community involvement. So if one day you guys were to stumble upon something, there's already like uh, um, a system and a line of communication in place. Uh, it's really, yeah, that's great. Um, what has been, and I think this will be like my last question for you, is what has been your favorite part about working with the community or the thing you've taken away the most from working with the people that live on this island? Yeah, I mean, I think the most exciting aspect of this work has been really building off of the excitement that community members have for the history and heritage of St. Croix. This work has only been possible because there have already been community movements mm -hmm. towards the kinds of preservation and conservation efforts that we're seeking in our project. So CHANT, the Corrosion Heritage and Nature Tourism Organization, um, is also, you know, dedicated to understanding vernacular architecture and teaching that to youth on island. And yeah. what that has meant is that when these coral structures need um, renovations, rebuilding, things like that, you know, Frandella has been instrumental in actually training youth to be able to do that work. So she's one of our four community members, was part of these initial conversations from beginning along with other members in her organization. Um, and just last year, they were able to do like a masonry um, workshop on the estate little princess, you know? So it's really being able to, to see how community derived archeological projects are built off of the work of communities yeah. um, and not like, you know, some kind of brand spanking new idea. Mm -hmm like oh no like these were already yeah. in operation like the kind of desires from folks being in connection to the national park service as a part of that the kind of desires from the university of the virgin islands caribbean culture center and um stewards of like heritage and history on saint croix like dr Trinzira, um are what make our project possible yeah well, thank you so much for your time. And um, I'm gonna have you send me some info about the um, Society of Black Archaeologists yes. so that I can post
post it for anyone who's interested in learning more, because um, that was something that I did want to touch on, but I'll make sure that I get it out, out to the people, um, <laughs> you know, however that ends up being, maybe I record something about it, but um, because, you know, that is super important to, um, you know, uh, Black people in anthropology and archaeology, and I'm really glad that you've uh, been a part of it, creating a space for that. So, um, but yeah, thank you so much for your time. You're a pleasure to speak to. Oh my goodness. I literally could listen to you talk about your work for hours and <laughs> selfishly, I wish that this podcast could be ours, but, um, yeah, I just thank you so much. No, thank you. This has been really fantastic.